The Guardian. Now we turn to the story we've been covering for days, the battle for control that continues raging in Libya. Well, Muammar Gaddafi may be losing his grip on power, but not his defiance, while his people are bracing for the worst. People do need to leave now. That is the message I give very strongly to British citizens in Libya. The message is very clear, which is the violence we have seen is appalling and unacceptable. And I have this very clear message for people in that regime, which is the world is watching you and the world will hold you to account. Tonight, British forces are in action over Libya. They are part of an international coalition that has come together to enforce the will of the United Nations and to protect the Libyan people. So what we are doing is necessary, it is legal, and it is right. Tonight, of course, our thoughts should be with those in our armed services who are putting their lives at risk in order to save the lives of others. They are the bravest of the brave. This was your revolution, not our revolution. It was those brave people in Misrata, in Benghazi, in Brega, in Zlitan, in Tripoli, in the Nafusa Mountains, who were incredibly brave in removing the dreadful dictatorship of Gaddafi. And I pay tribute to those people throughout Libya today. Barely a year after becoming Prime Minister, David Cameron pursued the United Nations mandate to protect Libyan civilians and committed British troops to defeat the Gaddafi regime. It was a big gamble for a rookie PM. So how did he cope with his first war? Libyans on the Edgware Road in London, well, let's say they're fans. Singing, rhyming, I think, you know, we're jubilant more than anything. I can't, I can't, I'm speechless, I'm honestly speechless. I feel very happy. I am going to the paradise. I am very, 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 very happy for my children and for my grandchildren and for my country. Thank you for the, uh, for the English, for the uh, French, for the NATO, for everybody supports us. Thank you for the, uh, the whole world that supports us. It's not a time for revenge from other people. We should, you know, look forward, stand, put Gaddafi behind us and look forward to build the new Libya. It will be a democratic country, uh, a free country, um, uh, a beautiful country. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's just going to be true Libya, the real Libya. We all look forward to build our country again. We need to build our country and people like us who don't come back and help to build block after block. So what's good we are for? Saad Esadeg is a leader of the Libyan community in Manchester. I asked him to assess David Cameron's contribution to the Libyan crisis so far. David Cameron is one of the very favourite personalities in Libya at the moment. I've seen him when he arrived in Libya, when he visited Libya with Sarkozy. And they had a fantastic reception. Unlike, I wouldn't think Mr. Blair would get the same reception in Iraq, for example. And I think he's taken a very, very, very good decision at at the right time to save Libya from Gaddafi and 
you know, to to actually win people over. You know, like now you, you can, nobody can say anything negative about Sarkozy and about Cameron in Libya. You know, they're really very very well liked and uh, and respected. I mean, were they decisions that, that that needed uh, particular uh, expertise and particular courage on his part, or were they just decisions that any prime minister might have made? I don't think any prime minister might have made because of, of all the pressures from Iraq and Afghanistan, because those are very negative experiences. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a British citizen and I've been in this country for the last 20 years, and I know how difficult it is to take such decisions. I think it was very brave on his behalf to uh, to, to actually take such decisions. Many people were trying to convince uh, him and Sarkozy and everybody else who got involved in, uh, in uh, liberating Libya that it is going to turn into a Somalia, it's going and into an Afghanistan, all of those scenarios, which were very upsetting for us as Libyans. But uh, I, I, you know, I think the decision was very brave and was very was was also very intelligent and shows that a very very good insight. Let's just play what if. What if David Cameron hadn't been involved in the way that he was? If he hadn't um, pushed for the, the the action in Libya, what do you think would have happened then? I think we would have uh, seen a lot of more deaths in Libya. I think, I mean, it's already, it's, it, the toll is, is already high. You know, the toll, we're talking about 30,000 at least, and about 30,000, 40 to 50,000 who are missing. Things like this, you know, if, they, if, if NATO, if Britain and France and America did not uh, actually come in when they came in on the 19th of March, we would have seen massacres. I, I felt very supported, and I felt very proud as British Libyan, you know, that my government, my, the British government is actually doing something for my people back in Libya. You know, that it was a, it's a fantastic feeling for British Libyans. The Guardian's chief political correspondent, Nick Watt, has been evaluating Cameron's performance. Welcome to you, Nick. Hi there. Um, well, you've looked at this. What have you learned? Give us the broad themes. Well, I think the key theme that we've learned from this, obviously, is David Cameron would say, look, I don't have a Cameron doctrine for foreign policy. He made a speech at the UN General Assembly last week, which was setting out his philosophy for foreign policy. He said, don't think of it as a doctrine. But we're certainly able to get an idea of what he thinks. And I think the key lesson uh, that we have from what happened in Libya is that he was absolutely determined that he wasn't going to make what he regards as two mistakes. Mistake number one was the Iraq war. go to war with questionable legal backing, uh, not with the support of the UN. That's mistake number one. But equally, mistake number two is to do nothing. And the example he would think of that is Srebrenica, which was in 1995 in Bosnia, when the United Nations was just utterly lame and unable to uh, stop uh, that slaughter, which looked pretty much like genocide in Bosnia in 1995. He was only 29 at the time. Uh, interested in domestic politics uh, but his people say that he absolutely knew what went on in Srebrenica uh, and they uh, tell us about how he was not going to let Srebrenica happen on his watch when Gaddafi was moving in on Benghazi and some of his people talk about how David Cameron didn't be didn't want to be what they call the pull up the drawbridge generation. How did he vote on Iraq? 
Well, it's interesting that because uh, David Cameron had been an MP for just two years, elected in 2001. So just an MP for two years at the time of the Iraq war. He voted for that war. It was a three line whip under Ian Duncan Smith's leadership of the Conservative Party. You had to uh, vote for that if you wanted to remain, as they say, uh, on on the front bench. But he did sweat uh, ahead of that vote and indeed after that vote. And we talk about how obviously close David Cameron uh, is to George Osborne but George Osborne never had any doubts about that vote thought it was the right thing to this day George Osborne says it's the right thing to do David Cameron yes he'll say it's the right thing to do but boy did he sweat at the time and boy did he sweat afterwards so um, making sure that the procedure's right and making sure that you don't that, that, that you, you you do take the proper action is that a strategy that he came to that he sat down and thought this is what I'm going to do or is it something that he's stumbled towards since I think you could say that this, in a sense, would have been a sort of an accidental war. Firstly, who saw the Arab Spring coming? Nobody. Who then, in the course of the Arab Spring, saw what was going to happen in Libya? Nobody. Um, So he uh, didn't uh, say, I'm going to take this action. Yes, it happened by accident. And also, don't forget that when things started to really go wrong in Libya, David Cameron was on that trip to the Gulf back in February, uh, which uh, obviously started with his visit to Egypt to Tahrir Square. And initially, Britain mucked it up. Uh, They really were on the wrong side, very slow at getting British nationals out of Libya. So it very much came onto his radar. He woke up to the importance of it. But obviously, the big moment was in the middle of March, uh, when it looked like there was going to be a slaughter, a massacre is what they say in Benghazi. It all happened very quickly uh, and they had to move to stop that by getting that Security Council, uh, at the, that, that resolution at the United Nations Security Council. So importantly, when the historians look at it, the audit trail will be there. They would say that very much the audit trail would be there. There are proper papers, proper meetings. And in the mornings, you'd have the meeting of the National Security Council, Libya, as they call it, of ministers. And then in the afternoon, there'd be another meeting uh, of, um, of officials uh, chasing it all up. All of that will be minuted. There will be, there will be papers galore. Of course, one of the extraordinary things about this will be that uh, once again, we are uh, in league with France. I think uh, Sarkozy the other day was quoted as saying, I adore David Cameron. And that was crucial to the, the, the Liberian operation. How on earth did that come about? Well, I mean, it's extraordinary, Hugh, isn't it? When you're thinking of differences uh, with with Iraq, uh, that was obviously in Iraq, just the UK and the US. And uh, we were completely in a different camp to France. This time it was the other way round. Uh, the Americans started the initial bombing of Libya and then they said, over to you, the Europeans, which was basically Britain and France. And uh, the British Prime Minister was incredibly close to the French president on that. I think what happened was that David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy had had developed a good relationship some years back uh, when David Cameron uh, was in opposition. Nicolas Sarkozy spotted what he thought was a rising star on the centre-right, hugged him close, they got on very well, uh, and they essentially reached the same instinctive position uh, on on this one. But interestingly, there wasn't complete agreement uh, in Europe. Uh, The Germans, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, she was very, very wary of this military action, argued against it at a European summit uh, just before uh, the vote at the UN. Germany happened to be sitting on the Security Council, and they abstained. And interestingly, there's a There's a lot of irritation, anger, well, maybe not anger, but frustration amongst British ministers and British officials that Germany, which after all is the largest country in Europe, uh, was in their eyes so unhelpful. 
Is Cameron one of those leaders who actually is happy on the international stage and happy um, not not being at war, but involved in that level of diplomacy? Or because some would say actually you've got a lot of work to do back here at home. That's right, Hugh. I mean, usually what happens is that prime ministers uh, win an election and then they focus on the domestic agenda because the domestic agenda is uh, what's going to win them a next election. And then when they become unpopular, they find oh, I'm terribly popular on the po- on on the on the world stage. I'm going to get on a plane and travel around the world. With David Cameron it's been sort of rather different, not least obviously because the Arab Spring came out of nowhere so early on in his premiership. But even before the Arab Spring started, David Cameron was really quite fixated on foreign policy and essentially uh, his argument was that we have a troublesome economy, we've got to bring down the deficit, uh, and one of the only ways we're going to do that is by getting much better trading relationships around the world. So he did a trip to China, trip to India. He felt that the last government didn't really focus particularly successfully on those emerging markets. So it was really sort of trade um, that got him interested in, in foreign policy. But he also felt, and William Hay could obviously been shadow foreign secretary for some time before he became foreign secretary, so had been thinking about it quite deeply. They also felt that Britain had neglected quite important bilateral relationships. Essentially, the Labour Party very much believed in the United Nations, as do the Tories. It's in the uh, in, in the constitution of the Labour Party, the Labour Party very pro-European, that the Labour Party was very much forging relations through those multilateral institutions. And the Conservative view was, yes, of course, we're going to be members of those multilateral institutions. Of course, we're enthusiastic members, but it's very important to have uh, bilateral Bilateral relations, A, because it's good to have relations with places like the UAE and Kuwait, but also in the multilateral organisations, if you've got those good one-to-one relationships, things will be much better. And an example of that is that when Gordon Brown used to go and visit troops in Iraq or troops in Afghanistan, he would sort of pop, stop off in Kuwait on his way and see troops in Iraq and would visit the Emir briefly in the VIP lounge at Kuwait Airport. David Cameron said, that's insulting, not going to do that. I'm actually going to go to Kuwait, as he did on that trip in February, made a speech in the parliament in Kuwait. Uh, and that, he would say, has uh, led to, to much better relations on that bilateral basis. And so here we have, as happened with Tony Blair, a, a leader shaping his philosophy as he goes along. But what did Cameron's way of dealing with the Libyan uprising tell us about him as a man? Bruce Anderson's a veteran political columnist who studied the Tories and David Cameron for many years. I think we learned that he was prepared to take risks, go out in front, take a gamble, really, and follow his own instincts. Because he did this uh, against the advice, as is well known, of the Chief of the Defence Staff, General David Richards. Now, General Richards is an enormously experienced soldier, a very fine man. The Prime Minister was the highest regard for him. David Richards argued against this venture. David Cameron listened to his arguments and then went the other way. He did this with the Americans extremely unhappy and signalling that if the thing went into trouble, don't expect us to rescue you. He had only one absolutely reliable ally, Nicholas Sarkozy. It wasn't clear that this would work. I didn't notice any frailties. David Cameron's not a man who does self-doubt. He's very happy in his own skin, and he's very intellectually self-confident. When he thinks something through, he believes that it will stay thought through. Tony Blair, over Iraq, only listened to people who he knew would agree with him. That wasn't true of David Cameron. He listened to people who didn't agree with him at all and argued quite vociferously. In the other direction, he listened, he argued, they got a good hearing, and then he took the contrary decision. 
and that shows uh, steel. I think he coped admirably well. I mean, he may have been a bit lucky, but he took a basic moral decision that this could not go on, that we could not see uh, Gaddafi massacring his own people. We couldn't run the risk of having a, a mad dog state recreated on the Mediterranean coast. He didn't have any background in defense of foreign affairs. Well, limited in foreign affairs, little personal in defense. Obviously, prime, a prime minister is a steep learning curve. You know, if you're prime minister for a few months, you learn an awful lot about the world. But all the same, it was a lonely decision, uh, which he took with remarkable ease of mind. Bruce Anderson there. And joining myself and Nick to further examine Cameron, the war leader, is Mark Phillips. He's a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, who recently published a report on the British operation in Libya. Mark, thanks for coming in. Um, how was David Cameron able to work with the armed forces uh, on this when almost simultaneously he was telling them that they had to take some pretty serious cuts? Well, I, I think two things in that respect. Uh, the first is that the armed forces were caught unaware, as most people were, about uh, the crisis unfolding in Libya. Uh, but they were certainly not aware that the Prime Minister uh, would push for action in Libya to the extent he did and at the speed he did. And, of course, events were quite fast-moving, and if you were going to intervene in Benghazi, you had to do it fairly soon. But the military machine wasn't geared up to moving that quickly. Uh, and so that was an interesting aspect of their relationship. Um, but I suppose... The second point to note is that despite the existence of a National Security Council, um, Cameron didn't use that as a forum to seek military advice. It was a much more executive body than one might have expected. Uh, so the Chief of Defence Staff would have been there uh, and said, I have these concerns about your proposals for operations in Libya. And he would have been told, no, this is the decision, you go away and do it. Um, and so in a sense... One can ask whether the lessons from Iraq have been learnt. Uh, do the politicians actually take into account uh, the breadth of advice they should in planning and preparing for operations? Um, I suppose the only third point I'd make is about how this fits in with the Strategic Defence and Security Review, which, as you noted, did you know, place quite significant cuts on the armed forces. Um, and I think, if one's being honest, the government was lucky. It was lucky that the operation could be, start to be drawn down from the beginning of September uh, because we couldn't have sustained it beyond uh, that time. Because of operations in Afghanistan, uh, we would have had to divert resources back to yeah. Afghanistan. At the same time, other capabilities would start to be taken out of service. Um, and so the armed forces were very hard-pressed uh, to actually maintain the operations in Libya. And we are just quite lucky that uh, we've been able to draw down now as we have. Well, the armed forces were new in some respects to him. He was new to them. Who did he trust? Who, who, was, ta who was he talking to? I think the key individuals um, who were influential in the, in the Libya decision were the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Ed Llewellyn, uh, Peter Ricketts, the National Security Advisor, both of whom had worked together previously on issues in Bosnia, Kosovo, that sort of thing, and also... Uh, the advisor to William Hague, uh, Arminka Helic, uh, who, of course, comes from Bosnia. And so they were all very intimately involved in the and aware of the atrocities that went on in that region. And it was a very values-based decision to go into Libya. Um, and I think it's not to dismiss the importance of values in, in determining policy, uh, but I think it 
perhaps did cloud the judgment about some of the difficulties involved in executing a military operation. Um, and let's not forget, too, that it did extend from a humanitarian intervention to stop a potential genocide in Benghazi to regime change, uh, which was quite a substantial policy shift and one which I think really caught the armed forces unaware. And, of course, there was uh, debate internally yeah. uh, between the chief of defence staff and the government about whether or not that was actually permissible under the UN Security Council resolution. Nick, what, the gelling together of the military elements of this and the humanitarian elements of this is, uh, again, uh, a key feature. How was that achieved? Well, uh, one of the big lessons that they learnt uh, from Iraq uh, is that you've got to make sure you do your post-war planning very seriously. Uh, and it's interesting, the first cabinet meeting uh, that was held uh, just after the United Nations Security Council uh, authorising the military action was agreed in the middle of March. The first cabinet meeting, each cabinet minister, when they walked in there, had in front of them the written legal advice from the Attorney General saying this is now lawful. And then the second thing that happened was that Andrew Mitchell, the international developer, Secretary outlined his plans, his what's called the stabilisation plans, um, for uh, ensuring uh, what you do to sort of rebuild uh, Libya uh, after the war and indeed during the conflict. So very much uh, uh, different points there. But I do think that Mark is making some very interesting points about the tensions uh, between uh, the military and the political leadership uh, over, over Libya. Um, certainly there was great surprise in the MOD when it had been a assume that the UN Security Council resolution was going to authorise a no-fly zone and then almost out of nowhere the no-fly zone turned into authorising all necessary measures uh, that would need to be taken to protect civilian population. Now we know what all necessarily me necessary measures means, it means any military action uh, to protect, uh, protect the civilian population so they were surprised about that and when it became clear uh, uh, towards the end of February, beginning of March that the Prime Minister was intent on military action. I mean, there were some people in the MOD saying, is it a good idea to open up a second front? We are very busy. We are very stretched uh, in Afghanistan. And they were raising some uh, pretty, pretty strong questions. But Mark, then that's always the job of the military. Mark Phillips is nodding at that. Is that, is that um, your understanding, Sue? Yes. I mean, there was significant concern about whether one could actually maintain, undertake this operation and maintain it. And as I said, there was no end date for the operation. We didn't know when Libya would, you know, when Gaddafi would go, when the regime would fall. And uh, we, had a, we still have a major operation in Afghanistan, which is the main effort for the Ministry of Defence and the government. Uh, and as I said, in the context of the Security and Defence Review, you're drawing on a much smaller pool of capabilities. Uh, and yet you've extended the range of operations that you're undertaking quite significantly. Um, and my worry is that the government um, will take away the, potentially a wrong lesson from Libya. They might think, actually, this has all worked out very well and it's very easy to do, um, without realising that actually it was very difficult for the forces to undertake that operation and sustain it. Uh, but we also shouldn't forget that the operation isn't over. Um, you know, there is still a lot of fighting going on the ground. Nick, what, uh, Debbie Cameron hasn't yet put on his flying jacket and uh, announced mission accomplished, as President Bush did, but uh, is there a feeling there, or is there an appreciation that this could still unravel? 
Yes, I mean, as we speak, Gaddafi is still at large. They don't know where he is. And everyone you talk to says, look, this has clearly been a success. We prevented a massacre uh, at Benghazi and uh, we appear to have overthrown uh, Colonel Gaddafi. But they all say it ain't over yet. uh, And uh, they're being careful to guard against complacency. The interesting thing there is, Nick spoke about some of the, you know, planning that went in for the post-conflict phases, I suppose you could call them, you know, the stabilisation plans. Uh, but our ability to influence things on the ground is actually very limited. We've got nobody there. Um, whereas, you know, one can argue that things haven't been terribly successful in Iraq or Afghanistan, but we had, a, and still do, we have a greater chance to influence things there because we have people on the ground. In Libya, we have very little control over where this now goes. Nick, just speaking about it generally and historically, is a war leader a good thing to be in terms of the politics? Um, do, do you get a bounce in the polls and does it last? Not necessarily. I mean, George Bush Sr. ran a textbook campaign of how to... Uh, assemble an international coalition and then overthrow uh, a, a, well not overthrow a dictator but eject a dictator from a country he'd invaded uh, in the first Iraq war in 1991 and then he went on to lose the next election and why did he lose the, ne- lose the next election? Because the biggest issue facing the American people was the economy, it was the recession and he had nothing to say about that. So no, if you are a successful war leader you don't necessarily win the next election. The best example obviously is Winston Churchill in 1945 but what it certainly can do is it can enhance your status on the world stage i mean obviously think of margaret thatcher things were looking pretty difficult in the early 80s the falklands war came along in 1982 and uh, she won the election the following year she was known as the iron lady before the 1987 election she made a visit to moscow uh, and she was seen as a world figure so that helped her so yes it can enhance your reputation but you mustn't think just because you've had a successful war that you're going to cruise to victory. And just sticking with the politics for a second, uh, we talked about the alliance between uh, Britain and France, but of course there was a strange uh, relationship between Britain and the US on this, and uh, Obama took positions that weren't always seen as being particularly helpful. Where are we with uh, the US in terms of um, organisations like NATO now? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, Barack Obama showed that he's not George Bush uh, in this, that yes, the United States supported that resolution. And yes, they started the initial military phase. But then they said over to Europe, it's your backyard, you sort it out. That is a very different American president. I don't think there was any resentment or anger about that. So we all knew that Barack Obama, uh, who, of course, called the Iraq war a stupid war, uh, was going to be a a different president. Um, But what the people we've talked to have said is that the United States, the support from the United States was very, very strong in the run-up to that resolution. They said a no-fly zone is not good enough. You've got to be better. You've got to have something more effective than that. They were supportive on that. And during the military campaign, uh, what people are telling us is that they did pretty much everything short of dropping bombs. So there was American intelligence from satellites uh, uh, and uh, the the support that they provided was seen as um, um, absolutely essential. And some people are saying we would not have succeeded without the continuing support of the United States. Mark Phillips, did it operate on much that same level militarily as well? I think so, yeah. Um, Politically, there were differences of view uh, with the US about the desirability of of, uh, intervening in Libya, and in particular supporting the rebels. Um, But actually, when push came to shove, the military operation was enabled by the US, 
They provided all the support, the vast majority of the supporting assets, all the crucial intelligence and surveillance uh, capabilities so that we could actually direct this operation. Um, I think that points to something which is quite serious for the UK and other European countries, which is as we've made our budget cuts, uh, and we've cut very significant capabilities, um, and what we found with Libya is that uh, those are big gaps that we hadn't catered for. Uh, they had no single-service owner during the security and defence review, so they were just cut. Um, but also that we had to divert a number of assets from standing tasks, um, you know, maritime patrols in different parts of the world, on which countries like the US also rely. Uh, we had virtually no air defence during the Libya campaign because uh, over the UK because all our assets were deployed in Libya. You know, the list goes on. And I think uh, the trouble is, particularly as the US looking forward has to make defence cuts as well. Uh, Everybody is going to have to become much more discerning about when they actually uh, will use military force and for what purposes. So, Nick, uh, it was a big gamble. Looking at the the, the success of that gamble, where does it leave David Cameron's premiership now? Well, I mean, it leaves David Cameron an enhanced figure on the world stage. Uh, The criticism of David Cameron is that he looks a bit young uh, and that he's a PR man and he's a salesman. Well, he took a stance. He went ahead of a lot of countries. There was only one other person who was uh, up there with him. That was the president of France. Uh, And it looks pretty clear, though we're not quite there yet, that they are vindicated by their decision. So I think what we can say clearly now is that it makes him a much more substantial figure uh, on the world stage. But at the end of the day, his political fortunes uh, will be decided by the, the, the bigger gamble he took. And the bigger gamble he took is on how to reduce Britain's fiscal deficit. Well, isn't that the truth? A, a familiar trend. We elect a leader on a domestic programme, but so often it's events, and particularly events abroad, that force them to prove themselves. That's all we've time for. My thanks to Nick Watt, Mark Phillips and Bruce Anderson. The producer of this Guardian Focus podcast was Peter Sale. I'm Hugh Muir. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.